0: All right. Well, that's what we have to look forward to. They are coming. They're coming to this church here. Looking forward to everybody coming out and being a part of that. Um, They sing pretty good. Well, welcome, everybody. If you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Mark Tanner. I just want to welcome you on behalf of Grace Fellowship. It's good to see everybody. Uh, If you're in your Bibles this morning, uh, please turn to Philippians 3. Our text today is based in Philippians 3. Well, we've got a good crowd today. This is excellent. Folks, we're going to be discussing human righteousness compared with that of God's righteousness, if there really is even a comparison. But that's what we're going to be talking about today in Philippians 3. If you're there, I'm going to read it aloud. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee That comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's our text today. Extremely powerful. But let's start right off the bat. Paul starts with finally here. We're not not closing out Philippians. The letter's not ended. We know that he'll say finally again in chapter four. What we're doing here is we're transitioning from one subject to the next. He's got a new thought here. We just finished with Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now he's saying, listen, finally, my brothers, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. I love that Paul puts this at the beginning because after today, you're gonna understand why he starts with rejoice in the Lord. Is it an underlying theme throughout the book of Philippians? Yes, it is. It's an ongoing theme. But he starts off this chapter with rejoice in the Lord, and I'm going to close with that because it is perfect. It is perfectly placed, and there's reason for it. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, we skip over stuff like this sometimes. If I tell my little girl, I say, listen, Caroline, you can only come to this spot in the front yard. If you want to play in the front yard, you can't go past this line, okay? If you go past this line, you're going to play in the back or come inside. So repeat to me, where, where are you allowed to play? And then she'll tell me, where's the line? She'll explain it. I said, what happens if you don't? Because it's safe for her. If my oldest daughter goes to the movies, you're going to text me on your way there, aren't you? Yes. And when you arrive, you're going to text me, right? Yep. And when you get out of the movies, you're going to text me, aren't you? Yep. And then when you're on your way home traveling to me, you're going to text me. I expect four texts. How many texts do I expect? Four. And we repeat it. You know why? Because it's safe for them. I have no trouble repeating instructions to my kids if it keeps them safe. You're all exactly the same. And so right here, Paul is saying, listen, I've written this to you. I've probably said it to you. It is no problem for me to repeat this because this is stuff you need to know. It keeps you safe. And what is that? Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this is interesting because Paul kind of turns the tables here. Orthodox Jews, they called Gentiles dogs. They called Gentiles dogs. This was a derogatory derogatory statement, excuse me. And it's funny here, Paul turns the tables and is now calling these Jews dogs. And there's a reason. These guys have been following Paul throughout all his missionary journeys since the very beginning in Antioch. They're following him, snapping at his heels, wanting to tear the flesh off people, right? Wanting to, and that's a pun he uses, and he's wanting, and they're wanting to what? Bark continually, bark these false doctrines. So he calls them dogs, like this pack of dogs just snapping at his heels, chasing him from town to town. They want to distort what he's teaching, and they want to mess up the converts, that he's working with and the churches he's building because they are what we call mixing righteousness they are taking a works-based righteousness and wanting it to mix with faith-based they are bringing their old jewish customs and law into this new covenant and it's a mix and paul's saying they're evil doers that's strong evil doers and that's where we're at today. We're talking about human righteousness compared with that of God. So he calls them dogs. They want to mutilate the flesh. But look at verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision. He wants the Philippian believers to know, okay? He wants them to know that we are already the circumcision. We've already been separated. We're set apart. You don't need to mutilate the flesh. We are set apart. Why? Why? Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These Orthodox Jews, this particular sect, was putting countless effort into the human activity of their religion. Human effort. You have to do this. You can have faith, but it takes this too. And Paul's saying, listen, look at verse 2. See those first two words? Look out. He's saying, beware. Keep your eyes on these people. Look out for them. And guess what? You have to do the same thing today, church. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there are many major religions, mainstream religions today, that are preaching this, that works and faith are mixed. There's a lot of cultic practices that do the same thing. But big religions, we are not sheltered from this kind of teaching. So I tell my brothers and sisters, look out, beware, beware. Be on guard, because this is teaching today, excuse me, it's being taught today as well. So we have to be careful of that. And he says, don't put any confidence in the flesh. Human beings by themselves cannot achieve righteousness in the sight of God. Now, I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you today. All right, we're going to putting it up on the screen. I got a lot of scripture. Are you able to put it on the TV too, so I can see when you do it, guys? Excellent, I'd like that. So we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes 7.20. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, the Bible has just told us, and I use the Bible to support anything I say. Paul uses it too. So what Paul is telling uh, the Philippian believers in this letter is, first off, human beings cannot achieve righteousness in the sight of God. Do not listen to this pack of dogs. Do not listen to these evildoers. They are preaching a false doctrine. Ecclesiastes and Romans, two verses right there, have just told us we can't do it. Let's go on. True righteousness, then, if we don't produce it, is the result of the action of God. And all this is going to tie together here in a sec. True righteousness is the action of God. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and to put on the new... Oh, excuse me, excuse me, right there, Spirit. Real quick, I want to go back. Did you hear what he just said? He said that we walk according to what? The Spirit. Didn't Paul just tell us that, that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit? So scripturally, Paul is giving them sound, solid doctrine. We got this from the book of Luke, too. Uh, Excuse me, the book of Romans tells us that the law is what? It's weakened by the flesh. If you want to live by the law, good luck. What man can live by the law? The Bible already told us it cannot be. But yet they're bringing that into their teaching. And, And who is this in Romans? He condemns sin in the flesh. We know what that is all about. That's our Lord and Savior Jesus. He was condemned in the flesh. He took our sin. We were not on that cross. Our sin was. Yet, they still are pushing the requirement of the law. They're pushing human effort. There's a wonderful parable. A wonderful parable. But first, I want to share a a verse in Ephesians for you. Just because I love to back up what we say. Ephesians 4.24 says this. And to put on the new self. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And didn't I say in the beginning, true righteousness is the result of the action of God? And then in Ephesians here, we see this as we put on our new self, which is different from our old self. It's created after the likeness of God in what kind of righteousness? True righteousness. We are talking about true righteousness today. That is the action of God, not us. But this pack of dogs chasing Paul from town to town, city to city, this is what they're proclaiming. This is what Paul is having to constantly combat. And he wants his believers in Philippi, this beautiful church, to stand guard and beware of this kind of teaching. And today, in the church, it's unfortunate But we do have people holding on to their own self-righteousness, coasting on their own righteous acts. And we're going to talk about that. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. All right, before Paul throws down here, there's this wonderful parable I want to tell you guys It's in Luke chapter 18. It's that wonderful parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In verses 9 through 14 it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My goodness, did this parable just sum up everything that Paul has talked about. We have this Pharisee, and he's there probably in his gorgeous robe saying as loud as he can, Look at me! Oh, Do you see the amount I tithe? Do you see what I do for this temple? I mean, just look at me. I am so glad I'm not like any of you. And here he is, taking claim and coasting on all this self-righteousness. And what did the parable say in the beginning? People that trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Human effort. I did this. I'm righteous before God because of that check I wrote. No, I'm righteous before God because I went on that two-week mission trip. That was a big sacrifice. No, 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 no. The parable tells us it's that tax collector beating his chest, not even able to look up and saying, I'm a sinner. That's who is justified. And that's what Paul is telling the Philippian church. So, first four, we just read. We just read first four. And Paul, I told you, is about to throw down the thunder. Oh boy. He's going to present his pedigree, his performance, and his credentials. You know, when you meet somebody sometimes, you're like, hey, you know, I want to know that you know what you're talking about. What are your credentials? You know, before you diagnose me, right? What are your credentials? And Paul is going to give this pack of dogs his credentials. Look at verse 5 and 6. Circumcised on the eighth day. This means his family that he belonged to followed Mosaic law. They followed the rituals to the T. And he was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. There's no doubt the nation he belongs to. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh boy. Benjamin and Joseph were Jacob's favorite, two favorite sons. Born of Rachel, his favorite wife. The very first king, Saul in the Bible, the very first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, uh, that tribe was the only one that sided with Judah when they fought with David against his son Absalom. Absalom. The tribe of Benjamin is extremely important as Paul throws down this thunder. All right? So circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, pure blood, bread, excuse me, pure blood. His both parents were Hebrew. As to the law, a Pharisee, ladies and gentlemen, he reached the summit of what the religious elite could reach. A Pharisee was the top of the food chain. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Not only was he a persecutor of the church, he had just gotten letter and license to head out to round up another group of Christians when Jesus met him on that road to Damascus. It stopped him in his tracks. He was going to continue to persecute the church. So was he zealous? Oh, he was zealous. And then it says, add to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now this doesn't mean he was sinless. He had a measuring stick against other men. He was measuring himself against other Israelites. And yes, in the eyes of others, he was blameless. So Paul brings up all these what we call intangibles. We don't think of this a lot of times. In our sin life, sometimes we think of the tangibles. What are tangible things that keep us from God? What are tangible things that get us in trouble? And Paul's saying here, Oh, no, I want to talk about intangibles. I want to talk about reputation, achievements and accomplishments, fame. I want to talk about associations, who I'm associated with, what groups am I associated with, who do I know, who taught me, right? Morality, self-satisfaction. Now, these are the small things that creep up on us and will bite us. These are the things. Tangibles are easy to see, but not. These intangibles here, these are what get people in trouble. And there are a lot of professing Christians in the church that fall into this thing, and we call it, you've probably heard the phrase, you ever heard holier than thou? Yeah? Ever been called that? It's horrible. It means somebody saying to you, listen, (laughs) I've never committed that sin you've committed, therefore I'm better than you. That's the take. That's what people believe. I've never done that, so all right. I must be looking good in God's eyes. People live by this philosophy, and it's crazy. So, circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper, tithing, any other religious practice, guess what? It cannot save a person from his or her sins. I was reading a great publication this week. I was on fire in this article. I was like, yes, boom, yes, check the box, yes. And this uh, author was writing, and then she got to this part where she said, of course, talking about salvation, but she said, but of course, without baptism, it's not real. And that's when I did the whole X and threw the publication away because that's false teaching. And this is from one of the major religions I've talked about that we've got to be aware of and that we've got to look out for. So here I am looking on the surface of this article and okay, I believe all this, but then when you get down a little deeper, this is where you've got to be on, on guard. It wasn't that at all. Baptism doesn't save you. A lot of people believe that circumcision, this group, what they're pushing, they believe that that's part of it. You can have faith, brother, but it's got to be mixed with this. You've got to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, no, that's not it at all. But you'll have people, even present world, that will preach this and tell you, demean you, belittle you, make you feel small that you just don't measure up, buddy, because you haven't done this, you haven't done this, and you haven't done this. And it infuriates me because they're robbing Christ. They're robbing him from that cross. They're saying to me that they are equal with God and that human effort equates to what he did on that cross and it drives me crazy and it should drive you crazy as well. No, those things do not save. Only faith in Jesus can do this. There is no other good work on this earth that can bring a sinner to heaven other than the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That is the only work and that's the work Paul teaches. That's the work that the Philippian believers believe. And that's what you and I grasp and we hold of, the work of Jesus on that cross. And Paul says something awesome. And a lot of people get confused by this. I want to, I want to clear this up. He's talking about this pack of dogs that is pushing a works-faith, excuse me, mixed with faith. And what's important to realize is that He says in Scripture that it is a righteousness that depends on faith. So we know it's not works. He says faith. So is faith, is it pleasing to God? And I know I just triggered all of you. Hebrews Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But look at the first part. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, what must? Must do what? Believe. Belief is always first. And then seek Him. Then action. Belief and action. And what Paul is telling the Philippian believers is that this group is preaching a gospel where, no, it takes human effort first. It takes human effort first. No, we believe and then we act. It's not the other way around. Um, You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to challenge everybody right now, if you want to write this down, I challenge you to examine and study chapter 11 of Hebrews. Hebrews 11. It is all about faith, and it is a phenomenal chapter to explain what faith is to a Christian believer and what faith looks like. I'm going to talk about it, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But just to give you some key people here. In Hebrews 11, you have the faith of Abel, you have the faith of Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and many, many more. And what's beautiful about this chapter is it always starts by, by faith, this person, then the action. See, righteousness is always credited first to you as a believer. And we're going to see that in just a second. And then our faith. Then we act. Actions don't come first. Human effort cannot come into play when we're talking about God's righteousness. So, <clears throat> Hebrews 11, 8, 10. We'll put it up here for you. I'm going to just pick two characters. I'm going to pick Abraham and Noah this morning. Hebrews eleven eight 8, and 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham obeyed. How did he obey? It says, by faith he went. We know he went. We have the historical evidence in Scripture. But by faith, he went. The action came after the belief, right? Noah, let's look at Hebrews 11.7. Hebrews 11.7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Here we have again, Paul's already told us that this righteousness depends on faith. Even Noah, as he was building that ark year after year with his family, looking like a crazy man, building an ark on dry land. And here it says it was by faith. This righteousness Noah received came by faith. So Hebrews 11 is a very important chapter for us to study. I have one more verse I want to read from that. thirteen, Verse 13. Everyone we've talked about, all our patriarchs, all our ancestors, what happened? These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. Every single one of those believers, every single one of those that had faith and that credited His righteousness to them, they could see and greeted from afar what was coming. The promises weren't received yet. See, they were looking too forward to the point of Jesus. You and I get to look back to the point of Jesus. But the thing is, is everybody is looking to Jesus. And what's happening here is many, many promises had not been received or had been seen yet. We see them. We get to go back in historical and history right here. Look at the historical evidence. We can see the promises that were filled. But yet, you and I, we're still waiting on promises to be filled too, fulfilled too. We, brought, we we buried our brother Jim McQueen this week. Jim McQueen has stepped into the next part of the redemptive plan. He's ahead of us. He stepped into the next part of the redemptive plan. However. He and all the people in heaven are still waiting for that future promise of the bodily resurrection, just like we are. So you can see, but it's important to understand that very, very first line. What happened when they died? They all died in faith. That's extremely important for us. Look at verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Okay, this is powerful. This is powerful. Paul is becoming an accountant, basically. He's going to count. When we talk about counting, we're talking about assessing and evaluating. See, Paul is a Pharisee at the top of the food chain in the religious movement. He may have had enough morality to keep him out of trouble. Right? He had the creature comforts of his job and his position. He obviously profited from them. He had the protection. Right? He had the, the adoration from this. He was comfortable. But, and he had enough morality. He did. To keep himself out of trouble here on earth. But... He did not have enough righteousness to get into heaven. At the top of his game, these pack of dogs wish they had half of what Paul had thrown down. His pedigree, they wish they had half of that and it's still not enough. It's still not enough. It doesn't get you into heaven and that's what Paul's trying to say here. Listen, I want to talk about spiritual wealth. I've had it all. I know what it's like to have this in my past and I know now what it's like to have this in my presence. Works righteousness and faith righteousness, but only one is acceptable to God. So it's like he made this ledger. You can do it in your bulletins. you can do it on your, in your Bible journal, or you can do it in your mind like I do. It's so easy. You have a ledger, two columns, gains and losses. That's what he did. He wrote gains and losses. Basically, he was writing for this pack of wild evildoers. Here's all my gains. But as soon as I write Christ in the ledger, I have to move all of that to loss. I have to move it all to loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, it is incomparable. He could list everything he wanted. It didn't matter. His whole pedigree had to be moved to the other side of the ledger because it did not equal Christ. That's where he was at. These guys would be fighting for that ledger. They would be fighting over that credentials that Paul had. And he's saying, it's nothing, man. It's garbage. Now that I know Christ... And that's what Paul wanted the Philippian believers to know, that what we have is so valuable. And I put it on the front of the bulletin today. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. You can't compare it to anything. And why is it so important This surpassing worth? Because it's him, his work. He is the one who covers us in righteousness. We do nothing. It's all about him. Why should we rejoice? Because of that because of what God did for us. Righteousness and faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That which comes through faith in Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is God-given and not the result of human effort. You know what it is to be found in him? Verse 9 talks about being found in him. Verse 10 is going to be to know him and be like him. To be found in him is trusting and taking refuge in something to save. Here comes a storm. I'm going to seek shelter here so I can stay cool and dry. It's freezing outside. I'm going to seek shelter in here where I can be warm. I want to hide myself in God and protect myself from what's evil out there. I want to be found in him. This is what Paul's talking about. You know, in the last days, people are going to be screaming for the mountains to fall and cover them. You and I, we're covered in Christ. We're found in Him. This is what Paul is expressing here. And he goes further. He goes on to say, to know Him. And this may sound elementary, but in knowing Him, knowing Christ includes knowing the power of His resurrection, and it includes knowing what it means to suffer, just like He did. But there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Paul. Paul knew all about Jesus. When he was a persecutor of their church, rounding them up to be killed and to be tortured, he knew all about Jesus. The, the religious leaders that crucified Christ, guess what? They knew all about Jesus. There are atheists and agnostics in this world that know all about Jesus. It's different than knowing him. You can have a friend, you can say, Pastor Mark, guess what? I've got this great friend. And every day for the next year, you tell me something wonderful about him. Or evil, it doesn't matter. You just tell me all about this friend of yours. At the end of the year, I can say, wow, I know all about your friend. I don't know who they are. I don't know them. I don't have a relationship with them. I couldn't pick them out of a lineup. Right? That's that's how people treat Christ. Professing Christians say, yes, I'm saved. I'm saved. And that's the end of it. That's the end of it. There's no relationship. And this is what Paul is warning. Not only do we want to be found in him, you want to know him. You will never understand resurrection and suffering if you don't know Christ. It's not knowing about him. Too many people know about him. We need more people that know him. Paul's saying, listen, if you want to boast, right, if you want to talk about my credentials, that's fine, but that's nothing. It's garbage. I love this verse from Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Let me read this to you. Sust says the Lord. It says, he who understands and knows me. Not about me. We can know a lot about things. I know a lot about Mount Everest. Oh, I love Mount Everest. I know a lot about it. You'll never catch me on that mountain. You'll never see me on the summit smiling, taking a selfie. Nope. But I know all about it. But can I truly say I know that mountain, what it's like to experience all the things on Mount Everest? Not being able to breathe, the freezing cold, air that can literally kill you. Do I know that? No. I know about it. So we have to be careful when we say, oh yeah, I know about, I know about Jesus. You know, we want to know Jesus, to be found in him, to know him, to be like him. You know, I have a couple things here I really like. I want to talk about suffering real quick. People, people get suffering wrong, and I just thought I'd plug this. Folks, we do not suffer for the sake of suffering in and of itself. Please don't wake up tomorrow morning going, Pastor Mark wants me to suffer let me get up and see what I can do today to really, really suffer. We don't look for it. Suffering comes when we serve in obedience. When we serve in obedience to the Father. Paul has counseled us time and time again to have the mind of Christ. We are to look to serve others for the cause of Christ and not be deterred by suffering. When we're in line with Christ's will for us and we are serving others, when obstacles approach, when suffering approach, we don't run the other way or we don't fall flat. We endure. This is what he's talking about. For the cause of Christ. And what does he say? Look at this, look at this verse right here. I love this at the end. That by any means possible, there are people out there, because I've had conversations that say, well, Paul would do anything for this. Paul would kill for this. Paul would steal from a baby then for this. No! No! That is not what we're talking about. If by any means is implying this, that he meant to make use of the most that he had. to strenuous The strenuous exertion, right? To attain an object. To fight for it. That he may come to secure this object. This is what he means by that. That I'm, by any means. Paul is going to use everything that God has given him in his arsenal to attain this resurrection. He's seeking it. He's chasing after it. And we see that in Scripture. But because of this, it's because of this search, this pers- how he's pursuing this, it has nothing to do with anything human effort. God has already given him the righteousness. God has already given him faith. This is now action on Paul's part to continue to seek him because he wants to attain that beautiful promise of the resurrection. And that's why our goal is faith-centered, faith-centered. Centered, not works. We love God. Why? Because He first loved us. I think we'll all agree with that. A few weeks back, we talked about work, working out our salvation. We work because God works in us first. I think we'll all agree with that. It's scriptural. You have to. But guess what? We can make knowing Christ and the resurrection resurrection our very own. You know why? We can make Christ and the resurrection our very own. Because he has made us his own. Therefore, it's ours. Because he has made us his own. Faith is centered on Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. I like to think of a lot of this text. I like to create imagery to put with a concept or a verse. So I would like to give you my just, just a little example of something I do. Um, I have this courtroom thought. I enter the double doors and I'm walking down that aisle in a courtroom. And on each side... There's no supporters of mine. It's just all demons. And they're pointing their fingers at me, and they're screaming obscenities, and they're calling me out on anything and everything I've ever done, every sin, all my filth, anything that I've done against God, they accuse me of. And I'm walking slowly down this aisle to the defendant's table, right, where I'll stand before the judge, and I mean, I can't even say anything. I can't fight them. They're not wrong. And then I get up close and I see the plaintiff. It's Satan. There's Satan. Satan. And he's also, he's talking to the judge. And he's pointing his fingers at me and accusing me. You know what he did? And you know what he said? And then you know what he did here? And it's just so loud. And it's horrifying because, again, they're not wrong. So the judge slams the gavel. This is how I see it in my head. This judge slams the gavel and shuts every one of them up. It's absolutely quiet. You could hear a pin drop. And I'm sitting at the table extremely vulnerable because, I mean, everything's out there judge is looking at me and he looks at me and he says, "Hey. You're justified. You're free to go." Just like that. He looks at me and says, "You are justified and you're free to go." And I'm thinking, "What did I do?" Ooh, I don't deserve this. He just heard everything. I don't deserve this. And now you are. You're you're fine. You're justified. Get out of here. You're free. And I think of this imagery as I'm walking out of the courtroom, complete quiet, going, I did nothing for this. The judge, he, he justified me. And, and this is what Paul is trying to say, guys, you're going to have people in life, present day, tell you, you've got to work for your faith. You've got to work for your salvation. If you want to be righteous for God, you've got to work for it. And that is not the case. A Christian good works are a a result of their faith. Excuse me. It's a result of their faith. We've been covered by the righteousness of God. Why? Because of God. The Bible's already told us that. But there's two things I want to go over real quick before we close. Two things. There are people out there, my brothers and sisters, because I've had conversations, that like to tell you you're wrong. You're in error. The Bible's contradicting itself. Paul and James are contradicting themselves. So, therefore, I don't know why you're believing in the Bible when it's wrong. Let me read Romans 4 1 through 8 to you, real quick. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's what happened to me in that courtroom just now. We are justified by our faith through his righteousness. But let me read James to you now. James 2:21-24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh Uh-oh, what do we do now? Doesn't it look like it's contradictory? How are we going to reconcile this? Here's the problem with arguing with a non-believer or someone that wants to prove the Bible wrong. They really enjoy not understanding context, and they don't care to study in depth the true authorial intent. What does the author actually mean? Let me tell you something right here. In Romans, when we talk about Abraham being justified, counted as righteousness, we're absolutely right. When James talks about you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, he's absolutely right. Paul and James are not contradicting themselves. Let me explain what's going on here. James is talking about a dead faith. A dead faith. I could tell you, when I moved here two years ago, I could say, hey, guess what? I'm a really good guitar player. Oh, you're going to love the way I play guitar. First Sunday comes, I don't play guitar. Second Sunday, third Sunday, no guitar. Then you come, hey, were you going to play guitar, Pastor Mark? You said you could play. I said, well, yeah, I'm going to play for you. Oh, you're going to be blown away. I'm really good. You're really going to like how I play guitar. So it comes another Sunday, and I don't play. Another Sunday, I don't play. Another Sunday, I don't play. We'll say three, four months into it. You're with your friends now, and you approach me, Pastor Mark, we got a question. Just settle a bet for us, if you will. Um, can you play guitar? And I'm like, oh, yes, I can play guitar. It's coming. You're going to be blown away. You're going to love it. So I go on and on and on. And I mean, we're talking a year later. I still haven't played. And you're like, you call me out. Pastor Mark, you have provided zero evidence of you professing to play guitar. You've given, given us no proof whatsoever. I actually don't think you can play guitar. I've never even seen you hold one. Where is the evidence? Where is the proof? Brothers and sisters, as funny as that sounds, this is what people do with Christ. I'm a Christian, I'm a professing Christian. I believe in God, and that's the end of it. I'm going to do my thing, and that's how it's going to be. Professing Christians. When I talk about a professing Christian, I'm talking about where they stop at belief, if it's true, genuine. I have got to see evidence. Don't you want to see the evidence of me playing guitar if I told you I can play? I want to see the fruit and the evidence of someone that's professing Christ. Paul is saying the same thing. This is what James is talking about. Faith without the works, is dead. There's no evidence of it. That's what he's talking about. So Paul and James are both right. But you've got to understand, if we go back to Hebrews 11, I told you there's some wonderful people. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Noah did this, proving that their actions, their fruit, the evidence was there for their faith. And that's what James is talking about. When he says you're justified by works and not by faith alone, he's saying that a person's faith should be evident through their works. There's no difference. It's not works first. I wanted to plug that in because as Christian believers, we have to be able to stand on God's truth when we are talking to others about Scripture. And this can and will probably come up at some point in your life. When you're talking about works-based faith versus versus faith. I mean, excuse me, works-based righteousness versus faith-based righteousness. And that's why it's so important. It's time for you and I to evaluate our lives. It's time for us to create a ledger. You know, where are your treasures? Put them all in the gains column for a second. And not tangibles. Think of your efforts, your human efforts. Think of the things you've done. Well, I served here, and I served there, and you should have seen the check I wrote that Sunday. And I did this, and... Go on, go on, reputation, achievements, accomplishments, who you're associated with. Well, I'm married to a very godly woman. I'm going to go to heaven regardless. I mean, she's super Christian, so I'm definitely going to heaven. Think about that. Put it all in the gains column, and then I want you to write Christ in it too. I want you to write Christ. See, eternal values are only found in Christ. In fact, the spiritual mind that Paul has been teaching us, it looks at earthly things from a heavenly point of view. So if I write Christ in my ledger after I've listed all these, there's my education, and then there was this certification here, oh, and then I had to deal with these people, I can go on down the list. As soon as I write Christ, everything has to be moved to the loss column, just like Paul did, because my efforts, my own righteousness is not what's going to save me. It's only God's. We have got to remember that we belong to a God who loves us so much that He's given us this. It's not based on works. The works become because of our joy in this faith that we have that's covering us in His righteousness. We've been made free. We have nothing to prove in any achievement or accomplishment because it's been fulfilled in God. It's been filled at the work of Jesus. Why would I try to compete with Jesus? But people do? People do. It is time for you and I to create a ledger and really examine our lives. I want you to put it all there. Anytime this week, put it all down. Write Christ in there too. And I'm telling you, a genuine believer, one of faith, will understand the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus that nothing else matters, just him. And I want to go back to the beginning. What did Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord. Isn't that reason to rejoice? This is amazing, folks. This is amazing. And it's not based on your efforts, it's not based on what you can do. This is based on your faith and belief in God. He's crediting this righteousness to you. It's yours through faith. That's why we should be rejoicing in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you, Lord. We're so grateful. I know I'm surrounded today, Lord, by just a whole plethora of believers whose hearts, Lord, are in tune and in line with yours. Lord, we're fighting and striving together for the faith, Lord. And this is just such a powerful, powerful reminder of just who you are. I mean, this is all because of you. We know, Lord, the Bible tells us no one is righteous. No one is holy. Not without the work of Jesus. We understand you as our Lord and Savior, Lord, bestow upon us and credit us, Lord, your beautiful righteousness. You've taken everything from us, the filth, the nastiness, the sin, and you've covered us with your righteousness. Now when we stand before God, we are justified. We are made right all because of you. Nothing we did. God-given faith allows us to understand this. And now that we truly embrace this, Now we are taking action. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Sarah did this. By faith, Isaac. Lord, you've given us testimony after testimony after testimony, and example after example. By faith, then action. Lord, our works are our evidence of this faith. Our works are the proof of this righteousness and faith that you give us. Lord, let us see that. Let us not be self-righteous Christians. Let us not use what's in our gains column to hurt another believer or a non-believer. Let us move all of that to losses and see it as rubbish when it's compared to, uh, to the worth of knowing you. That's what we want. That's where we want our hearts today, Father. Let us leave today knowing that we belong to you and that you work through us because you have worked in us first. You love us first. Everything Is Christ first Lord let us see this in our ledger let us see this empty gains column except for Christ I'm praying for that Lord let us embrace just in rejoicing the fact that it's your righteousness it's your righteousness that loves and covers us Lord I thank you for all you do I thank you for this church Lord I thank you for every heart in here Lord And I just pray over each of us, Lord, that we continue to strive and fight and pursue you. Just like our patriarchs, just like our ancestors. What did they do, Lord? They believed and they sought you. I pray for that right now for each of us. I love you and I thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen.